invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Samuel. Uh, our chapter is uh, chapter 27 in the Pew Bible. The text is on page 249. We're getting close to the end of 1 Samuel, uh, near the end of Saul, uh, King Saul's life. Uh, what we see today, for uh, lack of a better description, is yet another episode in Catch Me uh, If You Can, uh, because we see King-elect David uh, on the run, and uh, the current king, uh, the first king, the, the, the king whose heart is turned away from the Lord, Saul, is uh, in his envy and his jealousy chasing after David. And David has with him a large band uh, of men and their families uh, that constitute a, a, a remnant, a group that is uh, aligned with, with David and recognize, of course, that he is God's anointed. Remember, of course, in the midst of all this, that God had promised uh, the, the land to the people. Uh, they are to be set apart. They are to be uh, a holy nation. Uh, but threats continue even after they make their way after the long journey, uh, of course, through the, through the wilderness and through 40 years and they inhabit the land. Uh, they, are continued, uh, they continue to face uh, opposition. And there are, uh, there are people that surround and even people from within that were not dealt with that, uh, that form an opposition and a force uh, that actually form for them. Uh, a temptation. The, the, the chief amongst which is uh, the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines are the the ruthless, godless bunch. Uh, they're the most sizable group, and there's different uh, marauding, uh, brutal tribes and bands that surround the people of God, Israel. And David says to himself, in this pursuit that that Saul has after him, what am I to do? Except uh, he imagines it best to go into enemy territory. This is something he's done uh, elsewhere. Uh, in chapter 21, we read of it, but he, he goes into enemy territory into the region of, of Gath, thinking this is the only way that I can dissuade uh, Saul from from chasing after me. Romans. This is what I want to remind you, even before we open up this unique uh, portion of the text. Uh, I want to remind us all Romans inspired of God. Paul writes in Romans 15 for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So the, the whole of it has a purpose. I just, you know, kind of be honest with you this week. I opened up the text and began my study and thought, why and how am I going to preach this? <laughs> and, and, and so I'm reminding you and I'm reminding me that God did have this as part of the redemptive story for our purpose and, and for our hope. He did include it for a reason so I think you're going to see why, uh, because it is difficult. It is obscure. And, uh, and this is an illustration. Please go ahead and stand as we show deference to God's word that the word of God is not uh, it, it is it's, it's not sensitive. It's it's uh, it's not sanitized. Uh, this is uh, sometimes the way it really, frankly, is. First Samuel 27. Hear this, the word of God. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me to do than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived in lived with Achish at Gath, and he and his men, and every man in his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinanam and Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. 
Verse 5, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given in one of your country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave them Ziglag. Therefore Ziglag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went out, excuse me, went up and made raids against the Jezurites and the Gizurites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as shore to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man or woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of the the Jeremiahites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. And then just into the first part of this next chapter. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go with me into in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for some help. Father, we do ask for help and aid that you would guide us, that you would make, uh, Lord, your word alive to us, that you would help us to see uh, not only David's sin, perhaps, but our sin, and that we would also see a great Savior, Christ. Help us to see him, we pray in his name. Amen. It was uh, almost exactly a year ago that um, I buried our friend uh, Jen Endicott, uh, Ann Endicott's uh, daughter. So you can pray for her. Um, it was, you know, that's the, we buried her in the uh, the Pembroke Center uh, Cemetery there. And you know, it's 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 an interesting thing to walk through a cemetery, isn't it? You know, you 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 know you you observe things, you read things. Some of them are, you know, pretty surprising. I'm, to me, at least, it was it's interesting. It's surprising sometimes how long people lived, and uh, and how little there is said about them on their tombstone, their epitaph. I mean, there's only so much you can say, and there's so little that we know of these people uh, of old. This week, I was tasked with writing my grandmother's obituary, and so now I'm, I'm working on a sermon that I'll preach for her funeral on Tuesday. The funeral is a time when people willingly, there's no coercion, but willingly, happily, uh, they say, Uh, The best things, you know, they overlook the chapters of your life. If they know you well, they overlook the chapters of your life that might be a little a little bit ugly. And that's the day when they're going to say nice things about you, which is not hard at all, uh, because my grandmother was very precious to me. And she was a sweet woman. She was a godly uh, woman. In fact, I I firmly believe that the prayers of this woman uh, were very instrumental in the fact that I have this family and that this church family uh, even exists. So I, I thank God. For her, of all the people in Scripture, truly, I, I think I can say this pretty, uh, pretty confidently. Of all of the people 
that are recorded in Scripture, the one that we know the most about humanly is David, is King David. And if you were to summarize David, I mean, David, what would be on his epitaph, you know? I mean, he, he was a, a man of many talents, a man of many uh, titles. He had many triumphs. He had many troubles. He had many failures. And I guess if you had to summarize it in one you know, turn of phrase, it would be David, a complex man. Uh, that truly is what we see in this chapter. I think you would agree. But if you look at the whole of the, the story, if you look at the way that God sees David, and that we see David in the greater picture, we see the real epitaph will be written, David, a man after God's own heart. And that should give us hope. And I want to explain why, and I want to get into that. But here, you know, David does, we see, he stumbles, he struggles he has sorrows. He has regrets. And praise be to God, he has a redeemer. David does. How do we assess this? I just ask two brief questions that I want to take up. They're listed there in the order of service. Is David fretful or is he faithful? And then is David guilty or innocent, really, when we read this? First of all, is David fretful or faithful? There's a great deal just packed into verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day. What? At the hands of Saul? David here is taking up counsel. Unfortunately, David is only taking up counsel here with David. And and that's that's not the definition of wisdom. He doesn't seek, as he does elsewhere, he doesn't seek the counsel of others and the input. He He doesn't do that. He takes up a plan. And then most importantly, he doesn't take up counsel with the Lord. In fact, we know that he had a pattern of doing that by faith because elsewhere we read in places like chapter 23 that it says before David took another step, before David headed out with his plans, he said why? It says he inquired of the Lord, that he slowed down, he sought the Lord's counsel. David is listening to himself. We all do this, by the way. David is listening to himself. Which proves to promote a fretful, uh, you know, disposition, and he's despairing, and he's moving in toward, uh, you know, things that are, are false. There's no reason to conclude that his his life will be taken by Saul. He is promised. He has been given a promise from God that it'll be his kingdom that that will one day reign over, uh, and it was God's design. And he he didn't have a hard time believing that elsewhere, but he does now. And And God provided different reminders along the way through people like Jonathan and his own wife Abigail. And and even the lips of Saul, his enemy, said Saul himself, who was fickle on this matter, looked at him and said, Surely I know that you will have my kingdom, the kingdom that God has given to you, not me. David fails to see the immense power and the deliverance that God has provided to him time and time again, even though the ones that we've clearly read of here. David is clearly struggling. He's vacillating from faith, something that he has so boldly demonstrated, even in the face of great opposition and previous encounters and times, even as a young man, to fear, from faith to fear. One of my favorite, uh, recently a, a, a Bible teacher, pastor that I appreciate from Britain is Stuart Olcott. And he talks about the problem that we face in the Christian life. We face a lot. But one of them is is what we sometimes refer to as backsliding. And backsliding is is kind of what it sounds like. It's it's a retreat. It's a it's a it's a it's a sliding back into unbelief 
and sin and such. And the, and the essence of it, Alakot says, is a backsliding is when the circumstances of this life, of, of the visible world, the circumstances of the visible world become greater and more real to us than the invisible. Does that make sense? In, in other words, circumstances loom very, very large and God and his grace and his word and the realities of the spiritual realm loom small in comparison. Sally Lloyd-Jones uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you have a copy of it. I'd love to give you one. We've probably got uh, several. But the Jesus Storybook Bible, she talks about it kind of echoes. She defines faith like this. And it kind of echoes from Hebrews 1. She says, faith is believing what God said more than what our eyes can see. Now, this is not saying that there's nothing... You know, unimportant about evidence and, and observation and reason and our eyes. But there are times, of course, that we are clearly walk, called to walk by faith, even when we cannot see God and the wisdom of his ways. We walk in it. And here we find David at a season where it seems as if he is indeed backsliding. Where there, There's a season here where there's actually no Psalms that are recorded where David is reflect during this season, this whatever 16 months that they were exiled, that he chose to be exiled into enemy territory. There's nothing there's nothing recorded in the Psalms where he reflects. It's mentioned, but that's only because he acquired a new musical instrument during this season. It didn't say that he, he wrote any songs or reflected upon it. I think David is in a bad place mentally. I think David is not in a good place spiritually. Elsewhere, David does not listen to himself. And let me hear, I hope you'll follow the distinction. David elsewhere does not listen to himself. He speaks to himself. There's a problem when we, when we listen to ourselves, meaning that we, we allow the voices of our emotions and the moment to, to rise up. And we do not speak to ourselves. And David knows this, and we see this recorded elsewhere when David writes, and I'll give you just one of what could be a, a, a myriad of examples in David speaking to himself with intentionality. It's when he doesn't let the feelings of despair loom large, but he speaks the truth of God to himself. Hear this, Psalm 42, David writes, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Real, human, emotional experience. Why? Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope, here he speaks to himself, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Friends, feelings uh, vacillate. Feelings come. Feelings go. And feelings are not what are most important. It's what we think in the mind. It's what we think about who God is and how God operates. And we know, we see right now in David's life, how stress and the pressures, the demands of life can put someone in a very susceptible place. Now we've said it several times, even recently in our study, that there is a problem when we, when we, we do uh, fail to, you know, to hear clearly and to, to discern God's will and take up counsel with God and to speak the truth of God to ourselves, the, the problem, we said this in the last couple of weeks, when we take matters into our own hands, when we don't wait on the Lord or wait for the Lord, we get ourselves into trouble. And David concludes here in verse one, look, I don't have any other choice. I'm, 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 I know I'm going to die. 
Solomon is going to leave the country. That's the best route. I need to. In other words, David is saying, I, I'm kind of doubting that God has my back, and so I'm going to sort this out myself. And when when he does, well, when we do that, when he does that, same with us. When we do that, we put ourselves in a place of, 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 of trouble. I mean, we, we become impatient, for instance. We take matters into our own, our own hands. We don't wait on God's timing or we don't trust in God's commandment. When that happens, let me give you some examples. We tried uh, just to, to, to relay what this may sound like. If I obey God or if I follow and obey my conscience... As we've seen David do, by the way, in previous chapters, and that was wise. But here, if we follow in that way, we might say to ourselves, if I obey God, I fear I might lose my reputation. I, I might not get that promotion. If I obey God, I, I might fail this assignment. Translated, I think I need to cheat or cut corners. If I obey God, I mean, given under these circumstances... I might lose friends or be rejected. If, I'm, if I obey God and, and my conscience, I might lose out on romance. I might offend my, my family. If I obey God with my money, I might end up being broke. So we take matters into our own hands. And it doesn't end well if we fret and we allow for fear to rise above faith. And I, there's a mixture here for David. But let's move on quickly. Is David guilty or is David innocent here? I mean, I don't know about you, but it's it's pretty disturbing. And if David were on trial, what would the charges be? If I'm not saying he is and I'm not trying to to hoist, you know, some of our ethics onto an ancient narrative here. But I mean, this is problematic. I mean, David would be charged with being a liar and David would would be charged with being a mass murderer here. Well, if you may recall, back in chapter 21, this isn't the first time that David made his way into Gath. The last time he did it, he came to uh, King Achish. And if you'll recall, he acted like a madman. He, lit, he, he acted out deceptively to, to be you know, cuckoo so that they would release him. And he, wouldn't be, he was by himself at that time, not with 600 men. But he thought to himself, this is a madman. Now Achish sees David again and he says, oh, wait a second, you're not mad. And you've got these people with you, and I've heard reports of your, you know, your triumphs as a, a great warrior and a valiant leader. I'll, you know, he's saying, listen, now I've got some mercenaries. This is great. You guys come in? Yeah, sure. And David negotiates with him. He says, hey, listen, in verse 5, the negotiation is, can I have favor and let me have some land? So he says, sure. we got this ghost town of Ziglag. Um, you guys you go live there. Fine. And you can't blame David. I mean, you think of all the times that he's had to over the last a lot better than a cave. It's a lot better than every night. He and all the people imagine the families and the, the children with him, the, the pressure to, you know, have to look over your shoulder every night. The, this is a refuge of sorts for them. And so you can't blame David in one regard, it seems. But then verse eight, the attacks begin. They go raiding and it says that they go to places like the Jerizites and the Amalekites doesn't say he goes to the Israelites. That's David's own people. They, they're not guys. David a mass murderer here, though? Well, if you go back and you read in Exodus 17, it was clearly told of the people of God that they should indeed, they were commanded to take out these evil pagan nations, to remove the evil crimes and, to, uh, to, and the evil influences of these people. But the job was never done. 
fully. And so David is, in essence, carrying it out and then enjoying the spoils of that war. Now, whether we like it or not, there really is such a thing as holy war. And that's, that's not a subject I can take up right now, but to, except to say that whatever that holy war is, we don't get to define it. God does. So there are question marks here. I know that. And, and one of the questions is, is in survival and in war, is it okay to kill or to deceive? To deceive. I, I'm not at all, by the way, trying to push into the realm of ethical uh, relativism. I mean, there are such things as as moral absolutes, but we do know that sometimes those absolutes have a way of clashing. It's perplexing. What about the lying? I mean, the deception here begins, or I should say it continues with King Achish. Look at verse 10. Where have you been, David, raiding? Oh, well, I've been in the towns, and he mentions these tribes of Judah. And he does that purposely to say, hey, listen, I'm not going and uh, taking out other you know, allies of yours. I'm taking out the enemy Israel, my own people, to persuade him that, in fact, he is loyal. And, that, uh, and of course, the lies build up. And so what does he have to do? He has to take out everyone so that, you know, that's why it, you know, it clarifies in verse 11, so that no one could come back and say otherwise. He couldn't confirm otherwise. He needed uh, the enemies to be completely wiped out. It's Sir Walter Scott who once said in a novel, I think it's attributed to Shakespeare, but it was Sir Walter Scott who said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. So this is, you know, this arguably could be, and I'm not saying I know, but it certainly hints at the fact that if David lies initially, then he has to say another lie to cover up another lie, and it just continues on. David is so good at war and at lying that Achish now it gets himself even deeper in because you notice that the beginning of the next chapter, let's go together and take out Israel. Okay, now David's got a real dilemma on his hands. It's, it's, it's stunning that the king of Gath says, I want you to be my bodyguard, which is to be the, the one who, who protects my head. Ironically, of course, if you remember, the last time that David had something to do with somebody's head in Gath, it was taking off Goliath's own head. But here's the king of Achish, King Achish of Gath, who's brought him in to be his bodyguard. And uh, that's going to put him in a a problematic place because now he's going to have to actually go against his own people. Or at least be facing the, uh, the dilemma of what to do next. And God delivers him, we'll find out, in a couple of weeks. But it's only God. It's only that God could override and and rescue David out of this predicament in a merciful way. Let me say just a few things um, in conclusion. Don't you love when pastors say that? Uh, One of them is this. This is is an intriguing passage, and, and it's a difficult one. And one of the reasons is... Is that God, I don't know if you mentioned, uh, you noticed this or not, but God is not mentioned one single time. And, and the narrator doesn't provide any messengers from God or, or indicators. Was David fretful or faithful? Was David guilty or innocent? Here's the deal. I don't know how else to say this. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, it sure seems to be a mixture. 
It seems convoluted, and, and God's, by God's design, the, the, the narrator, inspired of God, leaves us with no commentary or real ethical instruction here. He just describes things here, and that leaves us kind of confused, if not frustrated. I do think there's some takeaways, and here's what they are. One is there are ups and downs in the life of faith. And furthermore, we cannot we can learn that we cannot place our faith in any circumstance or any any person. Every person, even the ones that we esteem to be the most uh, beautiful and loyal and powerful, all to a person falter and fade. The second thing I would say is don't be so shocked. I mean, we are. I understand that we're we're confused by David's inconsistency here. But what I would encourage us to consider is that maybe we should not be so shocked at other people's inconsistencies and rather be more shocked and more humbled by our own inconsistencies. And also, I would say we should be careful not to come down so hard on other people's failures. The last thing I would say, and it's just as clear as can be, is. We need a savior, and David is not him. Another, another epitaph for David could have been found favor with God. The story, this story my friends, is, is never over. Even if right now, if, if you were to take an honest assessment... And if you've got stirring right now, and you you are in a place of backsliding, my encouragement to you is to come back. And trust me, I know what it feels like. Very much so. Come back. Return to the Word of God. Return to the wisdom of God. Return to the ways of God. Return to the love of God. God does not have favor. On people. We do not have favor with God because of our consistency or our sincerity or the level of our devotion. The reason that we have found favor with God, any any one of you to a person, including King David, is by the mercy and grace of God. The love of God. You know, God hates sin. And we should too. And God yet, nevertheless, has compassion for sinners. God God is far more tender than we imagine him to be. Let me say that again. God is far, as our Heavenly Father, more tender than we could ever imagine him to be. And the extreme example of that, the ultimate example of that, is in fact the cross of Christ. What does it tell us when Paul writes so clearly in Romans 5? And I encourage you to go read that whole chapter today. How do you have peace with God? Romans 5. Here it is, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he goes on two verses later to say, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So weak Sinners, the cross of Christ. The gospel shows that God is kind 
And I, and I know we're, we're all shocked. We're all ready to cancel culture anyone who's got a screwed up past. Let me tell you what. King David is a great illustration that the good news of the gospel is that God likes to show kindness to the worst of these. To the least of these. To the weak. To the people who struggle. To the people who are, are like me. And you inconsistent. God welcomes. And, then, and get this. God welcomes... And he also arranges for sinners to come back to him. Did you just hear that distinction? I want to make it clear. If you go read the lost, go look at Luke 15, lost coin, lost son, lost sheep. It tells us that God not only welcomes the wayward and the backslidden and the troubled. But if you truly belong to him, if you are truly a son or a daughter of God. Then he is, he is not angry and cold towards you. His heart is warm. His heart is love. His heart is tender. And he not only welcomes you back, but he will find a way, and it might not be too comfortable, to arrange for you to come back and experience and taste and see the joy of the grace and the love of God through our union with Christ. Is that good news? I mean, it may not, it's not new news to you. I'm sure many of you, but it's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders of faith. Lord, you know our hearts, you know our emotions, you know our sometimes fickle and foolish way, our, our unbelief, our the ways that we've clamped down and judged other people's inconsistency and never shown an ounce of mercy and yet we want all the mercy for us. Lord, we thank you so much for the glorious gospel. We pray that you would grow us in humility and even boldness in speaking about it. Lord, I pray today for people in our community, our world, who need your healing touch, even in our own church family who physically and emotionally need your touch of healing. Father, I pray that you give rest to those who are weary, those who desperately need peace and contentment right now. Lord, we pray for those who grieve. Pray for my brother Bob Herman and his loss, and for Ann Endicott as she thinks about the one-year anniversary for my own family. Have mercy, Lord. Please be, I pray, with our young people. I pray you'd raise up uh, in, in, in and through our midst a faithful generation of servants, of followers who love and lead by faith. Lord, I pray today for other churches that proclaim this same gospel, who preach the good news of Jesus. I pray specifically uh, this morning for First Baptist and Situate, for Pastor Stephen McDonald. I pray you'd bless him, bless their leadership, keep them united, and may their witness uh, there be uh, one that brings many to Jesus. We're grateful today, Lord, for our nation. We pray that you'd have mercy. It seems almost impossible, but I would nevertheless ask that you would give us, plant some more seeds for unity. I pray you'd give our leaders humility and wisdom. Lord, I pray for other parts of the world, especially brothers and sisters who live in countries where there's persecution. 
countries like Syria and India and Sudan and Iran, North Korea, Lord, have mercy. Grant perseverance on our brothers and sisters who seek to faithfully follow you and worship you. Lord, we pray in your name, the name of our good and faithful and sacrificial shepherd, Jesus, who taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our 